Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi, and I'm your host. And I want to explain a little bit about the podcast before we start the show this week. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know that I can find on the internet. So either with amazing talents or achievements or just unbelievable life stories or invaluable insights into areas that they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from all across the world. Really, I, I've talked to people from Slovenia to the Czech Republic to Australia to countries in Africa and South America, uh, really just all over the world. And I try to ask them the questions that will hopefully help you extract something valuable or learn something new or just get inspired by. And I do hope that you do get inspired by these talks with some sort of a call to action, maybe change something that you wanted to change for a while, or even just enjoy, you know, detaching from the world for an hour and listening to some great conversations. So whatever it is that you get from this, I do hope that you extract something from it and enjoy the conversations. All these episodes are available on all the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and the rest of them. You can also find the episodes on my website, which is RoyBensV.com. You can find a lot of other information about me there as well, from photos to a little bit more insights into who I am, if you're interested. And you know, you can always go to social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me there. I'm pretty active on both those platforms, although the only ones I have. And um, I try to post regularly so you can stay up to date. And also be sure to, you know, put your email on the website. Uh, I shoot emails out with updates, news, any new current information that I have will be sent via those emails and social media platforms. So yeah, make sure you're in the loop. This week on the podcast, we have Austin Allred. Austin is an entrepreneur at heart. He is a Y Combinator alumni, and he most recently, he's also the co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. And Lambda, what they do is, it's a coding school, online coding school, but they are very different, at least in their financial model to a lot of other schools, especially to colleges that leave you in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. What they do is you don't have to pay anything up front and they take a percentage of your income once you found a job in the space that you went to school for. So it's completely different and we get into all of that. We you know, we go into the details. He really explains the ins and outs of Lambda. And yeah, he's just very open, very sincere, uh, which is, um, it's refreshing. Not a lot of people, especially heads of companies, are that open and that sincere and that honest about their company, about themselves. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you guys will as well. We talk about remote work. We talk about remote learning and uh, what the possibilities are in the future. We also talk about COVID because how can you not talk about COVID during this time? And yeah, we get into you know how he was raised, where he grew up, kind of the first businesses that he started. And yeah, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. We ran into a few technical difficulties here and there, but nothing that some uh, post edits can solve. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode with Austin Allred. Enjoy, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. 
Austin. Hey. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad, man. Are you enjoying uh, the, the the beautiful state of Utah? We talked a little bit before and you told me there, you were there. Yeah, it's 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 gorgeous right now. It's uh, still moderately warm. So uh, perfect weather. And we're, we're down here in the Red Rocks in southern Utah. It's it's beautiful. Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful. I've only been there once. I went skiing. Uh, Park City. It was amazing. But yeah, I know it's packed with like national parks and yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice one. Yeah, we're down here kind of by, by Zion, if anybody knows where that's at. Oh, beautiful. And is that where you, where you grew up? Uh, I grew up actually closer to Park City than here. So a few hours to the north, but, but in Utah. So yeah. All right. This is kind of like, this is like the Florida of Utah. So, every, <laughs> you know, all the, all the old people have a second home down here that, where they go for the winter. Yeah. <laughs> You're bringing the median age down. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your upbringing. You just said uh, from Utah, but you know, were you always kind of a problem solver, always a creative type growing up? Uh, either a problem solver or a problem creator, depending on who you <laughs> ask. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in a very traditional Utah family. Um, so, uh, you know, Mormon, uh, conservative, big family, five kids. Um, and yeah, uh, I mean, life was, life was pretty simple. Um, I was lucky enough that, you know, when I was, so there are two things that I think were pretty formative, uh, growing up. One was that, uh, our parents basically made us earn every, so if I wanted to like play soccer in the rec league, I had to earn enough money to pay for that. If I wanted to buy clothes, I had to earn money to buy clothes and you you could, you could weed the the garden for seven bucks an hour, or you could figure it out on your own. Um, so that I think that caused all of us to be a little entrepreneurial. Um, yeah. and the other thing is we're really lucky to be in a house where we got you know computers and the internet from a really young age. So basically, grew up online. That's amazing. Yeah, most people don't. Most kids don't grow up in in that way. You know, no. I feel like there's um there's this especially now. With the with the younger generation, like everything is kind of handed to them, where I feel like if you work for something, you I don't know, it just a gets you more creative. B probably makes you appreciate things a little bit more when you're not, you know, when it's just not handed to you. Yeah, I, I think so, and I think it. There's the other thing is an appreciation for the fact that, like, I mean, especially when you're young, getting a job isn't really an option, right? Like, you can't like you know, show up in an office and get paid decently well. So it's either <laughs> miserable manual labor or it's you find a way to hustle. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, you know, you give a 13-year-old the, no expenses and the internet and everything you everything you earn is play money. I mean, it's, a, it's a powerful incentive. Yeah. <laughs> so prior to Lambda, what other uh, businesses or ventures did you start? Uh, I mean, I was, um, so when I was really young, I figured out how to, so before PayPal had like security built in, um, I, so I start, I opened an account under my mom's name and then I transferred all the information to my information and they didn't have a check to like, see if that was legit. So I could act like an 18 year old when I was you know, 12, 13, <laughs> like I, I had a credit card, which I don't know yeah. how that's even possible. I'll have their security features built in. Um, you know, I 
created an account as my mom and then moved all the information over to my name and everything. So, you know, I had, I had a credit card. I had everything that you could need to run a business and transact um, and became a little eBay obsessed back when eBay was <laughs> you know, kind of what Amazon is today. Yeah. And that's at 12. Yeah. So I think I became a, an eBay power seller, which means you're selling a lot at like 13. Um, and then, you know, kept buying and selling, uh, when iPods were a thing, um, I'd buy and sell a lot of iPods. I'm not sure I was super profitable in doing that, but I sure did have a lot of iPods, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, which was, that was, that was the only important currency when, you know, I was 15. Yeah. Um, and then either that you know, or sneakers, right? Yeah, exactly. There's only so much you can do. Um, and a, a car was just so expensive couldn't even imagine buying one so uh that, that was the top of, that was it that was, that was the end of the line um <laughs> yeah and then i mean when i was a little bit older started buying and selling broadway tickets on ebay um and then that turned into a little company that did relatively well in single digit million dollars of sales nothing too crazy um but when you're 18 that's super real um Same. so yeah it was fun yeah, most eighteen-year-olds are earning what eleven dollars an hour or something. You know, they're not—they're not doing single-digit million-dollar companies. <laughs> well, so I had—I was working on it with my uncle, um, who had started and sold another company, and I like—you know—I didn't have enough capital to buy a bunch of tickets and you know sell them or doing anything like that. Um, so I was like, hey, you know, I in school, I wrote this like 30 page business plan of, you know, here's how you can buy and sell tickets profitably. Um, he's like, okay, can I hire you for 14 bucks an hour to do this? Or do you want equity? And I was like, Oh, 14 bucks an hour for sure. <laughs> um, and that turned out to be a mistake, but what yeah. can you do? <laughs> you live and you learn, man. Yeah. And then I know you, I heard you got, you funded your book through Kickstarter, right? And then you raised over a hundred K. How did you manage yeah. that? I mean, so I had, you know, my I spent my entire life kind of learning about marketing and how growth works and and stuff like that. Um, and so I would, you know, anytime I would do deep research on a topic, I would write an article about it. Um, and those would get shared around, you know, on Hacker News and Reddit and that kind of thing. Um, and I had a sign up list on my, you know, blog. So I had a couple thousand people signed up and was pretty good at uh, marketing. And um, when you know, I was trying to run a startup and it wasn't working out and I had a daughter in the hospital, so it was pretty much broke. Um, and so I decided, you know, I need to find a way to make some money quick. Um, and I'd always thought about what would happen if I turned that into a book. There wasn't a publisher or anything. Um but I, so I threw up a Kickstarter and said, Hey, you know, here are the first three chapters of this book. They're, you know, free. And if you want the next eight chapters or whatever, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, you can buy the book or, you know, here's a video package. Then I got a bunch of software you could bundle in. And yeah, we did like $60,000 on the first day. And that was life changing, like literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. At wow. the point I was, you know, I could save like a thousand dollars a month if we really scrimped and were meager. Um, yeah. So that that kind of changed everything. Do you think that's your strongest suit, the marketing aspect? I mean, that's my strongest skill set, uh, just because that's what I've 
done the longest. Um, and that, that comes pretty naturally to me. Uh, but you know, I don't run any of Lambda's marketing now <laughs> because I don't have time to, and I'm not as good as the people that I can hire. Um, so it's, you know, not everyone can be Elon Musk, huh? No. <laughs> Just fire the whole PR department. Just For so many things. different reasons, not all of us can be yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was it was a tweet that you that you put out today that I saw. There was um a vanity a vanity fair, I think, article. And it was basically trying to be a, a hit piece on Elon. But inadvertently, it showed how hilarious the guy is. And I actually liked I was like, this is actually pretty good. It shows him in a good light. And that's probably not what they were going for. But yeah, there seems to be this look like a chill right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But there there seems to be um and maybe this isn't really happening, maybe I'm just noticing it, but I think it's it's become more prevalent this clash of tech and media and there's more and more kind of hit pieces on on people in tech. And you know, I don't know if it's it's quoting out of context or gotcha journalism or clickbait headlines. And I know you've experienced this a little bit personally as well, but why do you think that that's kind of happening right now? Yeah, I think the the incentive model of journalism is kind of fading away. Um, like the you know, because of the internet, you don't make money the same way you used to. So there's and there's way more access to all of the content. So mm -hmm. I think I think journalists are just responding to the incentives placed before them. Um, and the other thing is the ability to go direct is so intense now. Like, I, you know, I can, like if someone writes a hit piece about me, I have a bigger reach usually than whoever that journalist is. You know, and thinking about like, Vanity Fair, you know, I, I checked this morning, like Vanity Fair has, you know, four or five million followers on Twitter and Elon has 40 million followers on Twitter. So <laughs> yeah. Vanity Fair can say whatever they want and Elon has the bigger reach still, um, which is not a dynamic that we're used to. We're used to, you know, you have to ask the New York Times what is the right thing to say and they will end up dominating the conversation. That's not true anymore. And I think that causes, you know, because of, I mean, there's, so you have both, decreasing revenue and decreasing influence if you're a journalistic institution. Um, and most of the, most of the influence is held by the people. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of journalists move over to like a Substack like model and they start getting paid more. And you know, so you eliminate the overhead and you eliminate, you know, it's the top people in those publications are in effect carrying the bottom people in the publication who don't have as much reach, don't have as many readers. Um, and it's kind of all leveling out into salaries. Whereas, you know, you look at the Ben Thompson's of the world that say, Hey, I'm going to go solo and write stratechery. You can make a million dollars a year. Now he probably makes more than that. And if you're, you know, a reporter of the New York times, you might make maybe a fourth of that somewhere between a fourth and a 10th of that. So it's just all shifting in real time and everyone's trying to figure it out. Yeah. Andrew Sullivan, who just started recently uh, writing for Substack, I think he said he's making about half a million, whereas before he was probably making half of that in the, in the New York Times. Yeah, probably just doubled his salary moving away from the New York Times, which is not something like, you know, if you tell, tell that to somebody 40 years ago, that does not compute. That's not no. a thing. Um, and even in sports writing, there are now, you know, publications like The Athletic that are, 
they're still like a publication, but it's very, you know, they're, they're kind of arbitraging and picking off, trying to pick off the top 10% of the people at newspapers or whatever else that have the big loyal following. Yeah. Um, so it'll probably become more of an individual thing where uh, a journalist sinks or swims by their own ability to create an audience, not based on the name of the publication they write for. And that's new. That's just a totally different world than even even 10 years ago. I don't think that was true. No. And actually, I had a journalist on the a few episodes ago and I asked her a similar question. And whereas Twitter is the kind of the final editor nowadays, do you think we can see a, a model, a shift in the model of how, what journalism is like? Because there's more I think there's more trust in individuals nowadays than in the the corporation. Right. There's not a lot of trust in CNN or MSNBC or Fox, et cetera. But there's trust in certain individuals so could they just break off and like you said work on substack or work on maybe other platforms or even just their own blog and just we're gonna get their news from them because we trust them yeah i think so and i think we're seeing that already um there's some model modes of journalism that that works really well for and there's some that that works less well for like it's hard to be a single reporter and break the watergate scandal open right yeah and that's what i think a lot of reporters wish that they were doing on a day-to-day basis it's you know that we're still referring to it however many years later because that doesn't happen very often with what we just kind of discussed you've been pretty outspoken on on certain issues uh with (laughs) you know mostly on twitter and uh it's not always the best recipe for success although sometimes it is you know as we say much to the chagrin of the comms team yeah yeah. <laughs> but do you found have you found that overall it, it helps you with, with your brand and, and who you are or it hurts you, do you think? I don't know. That's a really good question. I think it like people have a very binary response to a lot of the stuff that I tweet. Um the the, the scary thing for me is like if you make somebody mad once, that might change their opinion of you forever. Um the trade-off is that I mean, there. You know, I had a conversation earlier with the, another founder earlier this week about you know, do you worry about kind of creating a cult following? Like, there's some people who are a little bit sycophantic and will just agree with whatever I say because it's what I say, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit scary. Um, and so, you know, I think Paul Graham gave me this mental model that is like. Plug on the co-founder of Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the more the more followers you have, the more haters you're going to have, and they tend to grow in tandem with each other. Um, but you don't notice the you know the followers because they're just agreeing with you, and all sorts of people agree with you, especially if you have some position of any type of money or influence or Twitter followers or whatever. Um, so you don't notice that and you do notice all the people that get mad at you. Um, and so assuming, you know, and I think you can take, take that to extremes where it's probably unhealthy. Um, like, you know, think about Donald Trump, right? Like there are people who would do whatever he says, which is Mm -hmm. perhaps not ideal if you're a president. (laughs) Um, and there are people that hate the guy. I mean, yeah, at an insane degree. Yeah. Um, and to a lesser extent, think of like Elon Musk, who we talked about earlier, right? Like he 
can put up a $72 pair of, or I guess a $69 pair of shorts and sell thousands of pairs and get $10 million that way. Um, and there are a lot of people that just hate the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think where I net out is I would rather have people be either hot or cold instead of everybody being lukewarm or nobody caring um, because that's where the business is. Um, but the other mental model is from Naval Ravikant, who's mm-hmm. like, you'd rather be rich and anonymous than poor and famous. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm poor by any means, but I, you know, my influence is probably greater than the amount of liquidity I have right now <laughs> for certain, um, which is a little bit precarious. Yeah. Well, I mean, we humans like to humans like to follow people. It doesn't matter if it's religion or it's sports or it's uh, tech gurus or spiritual gurus. We we want to be inspired by people and everyone's inspired by different industries. And there are people it's inevitable that are just going to get obsessed with a person for good or bad, right? doesn't matter if it's a celebrity or it's Elon Musk or even um, Tim Ferriss. He had a whole blog post about how people would just, you know, wait outside his house or just find him in different places. And he's not some, you know, he's, it's not Brad Pitt. It's it's Tim Ferriss. Yeah. So there's always going to be those type of people. It's just, it's inevitable. No, I've seen, yeah, I mean... I'm by no, I'm not Tim Ferriss, right? Yeah. Um, but I've seen little, I'm seen enough of the pieces of that that you know I deleted my Facebook, deleted my public Instagram. You know, I now have like a hundred Instagram followers, and they're people that I know really well. And like, I mean, it's it's a little bit weird when you start to go. You know, we'd go on vacation, and people would recognize my kids on the street, and that's mm-hmm. when I was like, oh shoot, that's that's not like that was <laughs> not my design. And, and yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, so even like a, a lot of places I've changed out my face for a cartoon face. I don't think it'll make a difference. Like I'm not yeah. totally anonymous, but net net, if I can have people not recognize me, I would prefer that. Um, so it's not, I, you know, I want influence without fame. And yeah. unfortunately those things are coupled. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about Lambda. Uh, which is a coding school, but it is a different type of of school. Maybe explain to people that don't know uh, about Lambda a little bit more about it. Yeah, so the high level uh, Lambda is we train you to be a software engineer or data scientist in live online classes, and you don't pay tuition unless and until you get a job that pays you more than fifty thousand dollars a year, um, and you know, so four thousand one hundred sixty six dollars a month, basically. Um, so the, the big difference there is twofold. The first is that, you know, you can start without having access to any money or credit or loans or whatever else. Um, like we don't do credit checks. We don't do a formal loan review process. Um, uh, I need to, for compliance sake, I do say, you know, we do look at what your credit score is, but we're not using that in the decision-making process. Um, hopefully that keeps regulators happy. Um, (laughs) but the, the big difference is that it aligns the incentives of the school with the incentives of the student. So in most educational institutions, the school gets paid tuition and it doesn't really have to care what happens after that 
other than to, you know, market how successful students are. With us, like, you know, if, if students aren't getting hired, we go out of business. Um, and that forced us to think and act a little bit differently. Yeah. So you guys essentially take on, because there was a, there was a piece in, I think it was The Verge, that, you know, said some things that I, when I read, I just didn't agree based on what I know. So you guys essentially take 100% of the risk, right? College leaves you with anywhere from 100 to $400,000 in, in debt. And Lambda, the, the model you guys have is you pay nothing up front, you get a job, you pay a 17% of the earnings capping at 30K, right? Mm-hmm. And then you guys have the income share agreement. Mm-hmm. All right. Can you, yeah. can you explain more a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so basically, from a student's perspective, um, once you get a job that pays more than $50,000 a year, you pay a percentage of your income for a couple of years. So 17% of your income uh, for two years capped at $30,000. So whether you've made 24 monthly payments first or whether you've hit the $30,000 mark, at that point, it goes away. And there's five years of total deferment. So if you're below that income threshold um, for five years, then the entire thing goes away. So there's no like debt hanging over your head forever. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, you do have to report your income for those five years because we don't want people to game the system, of course. Yeah. Um, but but it goes away, um, which is super, super different than student loans, of course. Um, and then on the back end, you know, we, we finance the ISAs in various ways. Um, in some instances, uh, people will look at, you know, our historical outcomes and say, Hey, I think, you know, your income share agreements are worth X based on what your placement and repayments rates have been. Um, and so we can make a trade that way. Uh, more recently we've moved to where basically we borrow against the ISAs, uh, or we effectively borrow. It's more complicated because you know, we create an SPV and then we pool a bunch of ISAs and we, you know, underwrite those ISAs and then we can get an advance on those ISAs. So technically the ISAs are sold to that SPV that we own, but for SP- SPV is what single purpose vehicle. So basically another account or business that we own. Um, I have to be careful and explain it for regulatory reasons. So it's not deceptive, but effectively what that means is we get money against the ISA that we can use to train the student um, it's not all of the cost of training a student. In fact, you, right now it's something like a fourth of the money, um, but that lets our venture capital go a little bit farther um, and we have to pay it back plus interest. So uh, so we still hold the risk in that instance. Yeah, because I, I would think initially you must have had a long period of time. If, if, you're, if you're not selling the, the ISAs, you must have had a long period of time where you just saw no income, right? Because you get the first or second batch of students until they finish the courses, until they get the job, until they start paying back. Like that's a, a that's a good chunk of time. Yeah, I mean, we've got you know 180 people on staff right now, right? And somebody has to pay those salaries. Um, so venture capital is you know kind of how it starts, and then if you can get to the point where you can prove out that your ISAs are worth something. You can borrow or use those ISAs in another way to get a little bit of cash flow, but we're still, I mean, the, the risk of that is that, you know, look, if it blew up and you were selling every ISA and didn't have to care, then that eliminates the notion of, um, you know, being risk aligned with the students. Um, that's 
not only impossible, I mean, we wouldn't do that, of course, but nobody would agree to that on the other side. Um, so it's not not a thing, um, fortunately or unfortunately. I guess fortunately for everybody. Um, but, you know, even, even if we were to sell ISAs, they still want us to have as much skin in the game as possible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And uh, how, how did you come up with the name Lambda? Uh, so originally we were using kind of an esoteric... A programming language called Haskell. Um, and Haskell uses something called the Lambda Calculus. Um, so originally we were teaching this really, I mean, I think it's a really powerful language, but it's a pretty small language. Um, and then, so we, we had the domain, we had the name and we just kind of stuck with it. Okay. And you guys, you went through Y Combinator, right? Yeah, we did in 2017. How helpful was that? That was amazing. Um, I, I mean, I, I obviously, if you can go to, through Y Combinator, just do it. Um, you know, the dilution that you take is like 7%. And the likelihood that you come out on the other side without YC having influenced your, moved your company's value up 7% is zero. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a no-brainer. But it was, it was an incredible experience. Uh, Jeff Ralston and Daniel Gross were our partners at YC. Um, and they were super helpful and there were, you know, three or four times during the course of YC when I think their advice totally changed our trajectory. Um, so one of the examples is, you know, we were, uh, a six month program at the time and we're always toying with what the ideal length of Lambda school ought to be. And so I was like, all right, we can run two cohorts a year and, you know, we're going to run one cohort, you know, July, 2017, the next cohort, January, 2018, and so we'll, you know, by the end of 2018, we'll see how the first 20 students are doing. And that will be our sample size. Um, and Jeff Ralston, who's now the something president of YC, I'm not sure uh, what the titles are, but he's, um, he's no longer just a partner. He's like, why don't you run a new cohort every month? Or, you know, even every week, like yeah. that feedback loop is way too long. And for some reason, my like, because I started talking to physical schools where you have to get one batch of students out of the building to get the next batch of students in the building, it never like clicked with me that like you don't have that constraint. You can start cohorts every hour if you want to. Yeah. Um, and so that like little stuff like that that seems obvious in retrospect was a huge shift in the company. We've learned way way more than we would have otherwise. I mean, we, we would have been on like our third cohort now, um, and instead we're on like our hundred fiftieth. So Jesus, <laughs> big difference. Yeah. Big, big difference. Yeah. And can anyone join? Is there some sort of a rigorous uh, application process? Do you have to have some sort of basics in coding or is it just up for, for anyone? Yeah. You don't need to have any experience or any credentials. Um, but we, we try to as quickly as we can get a sense of how hard you'll work and how smart you are basically. Um, and we make all of our decision process based on that. There's a little bit of secret sauce in how we do that, yeah. Um, but it's 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 actually pretty cool. It's pretty egalitarian. It's it's pretty fair as far as in any admissions process can be. Um, and we don't care about we don't care about who your parents are. We don't care about how much money you have. We don't care about what your resume looks like. We're just looking for potential. So. You know, walk me through this. What's the downside? It seems all it's a win-win for everyone. I just don't understand why there's hate 
for this. I, I, you know, albeit little, but it just seems like it's a great leveler for, for people that maybe aren't in a big city or don't have the opportunity to go to a major school or the money to go to Ivy League or whatever it is. Like you don't have, you're not bound by geographic location. It affords the same opportunity for everyone. You're not in debt. It's just so it's a win, win, win. Yeah, the downsides are, um, I mean, if you can figure out how to become a software engineer for free, this is definitely more expensive. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily cheap. I think it's still cheap relative to a lot of universities, but it's not cheap. The yeah. difference is you only pay if it works. And in an ideal scenario, you're making so much money that you don't care. Um, and almost all of our students are including paying tuition, net positive, plus a way better career trajectory. Um, the downsides are, you know, if you put a lot of time and effort into it and it doesn't work, um, you still put that time and effort into it. There's no way for us to absolve you of that. Um, and that, you know, that can be frustrating. That happens relatively rarely, but it certainly happens, right? We can't yet guarantee that every student who goes to lamp, you know, steps foot in Lama school gets a six figure job. Um, and you can debate how much of that is on the student and how much is on Lambda. I think, you know, that's the scenario that we try to avoid, not only because it's the right thing to avoid, but because, you know, we'd spend tens of thousands of dollars training people and then we're going to get zero back. I would prefer to not do that. Um, <laughs> and then let's see, what are the other downsides? So I, I think it's really those two. Like if it works and you could have gotten there without spending any money, then it's going to be more expensive. I think everybody understands that coming in. Yeah. Um, and if you're not successful, then you don't have to pay tuition and we lose a bunch of money, but you lose a bunch of time and that sucks and nobody likes that. Yeah. And I mean, if, if, you know, if you go to, to college and you pick a major, I don't know what the statistics are, but not a hundred percent of the people are going to work in, in whatever field that they went to college in. It's so probably our, pretty low. Our statistics crush any university by a wide margin. Um, and you know, not to mention the fact that the people who aren't successful don't pay us anything, right? Like if you look at a school that has a 75% graduation rate and a 75% hiring rate within the field you studied, that's a really successful school. Yeah. Um, we do the math on that. And of the people who've paid tuition, it's like 50% of them are successful. And you know, the school gets paid for 100%, even if the 50% are only successful. Lambda only gets paid for the 50%. Um, so it's a much better system of education. Um, but people are thinking about, like, they're comparing us oftentimes against a utopian ideal that doesn't exist instead of against, you know, an education system that does. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's often, you know, the, the pushback is, well, why can't you do it? this way or, you know, why isn't it just free for everybody? Um, it's like, I, I wish it could be like, I'd yeah. be thrilled for that. Um, <laughs> but someone has to pay instructor salaries. Someone has to pay for the software. Someone has to pay for our placement teams. Someone has to pay for the career coaches. Um, if you can, if you know of a way to automate all of that and make it cost zero, please let me know. <laughs> Cause I'll yeah. buy it. <laughs> and even off of that, someone will make money somehow. It's just, you have to, there's just got to be a, a process where people can make money. You don't have to, you don't have to bankrupt other people, but there's just got to be a way where everyone can stay fed. Yeah. Um, I think, it, I think the average person gets that right. 
Yeah. Um, the, other, the other criticism is that somehow what we're doing is indentured servitude, which makes zero sense because you know you only have it's the the tricky thing in the financial space is you know is this a loan and or is it you know ownership of people um and like it's it's really neither it's kind of in between those things it really has the best pieces of the loan with the forgiveness of if it doesn't work out you don't have to pay but you can you could create an income share agreement with the loan, it would just be the most forgiving loan of all time. So we may end up moving that direction just for clarity. Like, look, it's a $30,000 loan, but if you make 24 payments, then we'll forgive the rest. And if you don't get a job, we'll forgive it. And, you know, in the, all these instances, you don't have to pay anything. The tricky part is there in the United States, if you forgive a loan, that is income on your income taxes. So we don't want to you know, give you a $30,000 loan and forgive it because then you have to pay taxes on that, which is yeah. no fun. All right. Quick word from our sponsors. Guys, do you like drinking coffee as much as I do? I hope you do. But do you also like helping people in need? I'm assuming you do because my listeners are good, good people. And Free Lunch Coffee, the company I teamed up with, just simplify that whole process for you. It's a really an amazing brand with an amazing message. And what they do is when you buy one bag of coffee, they provide 10 meals to children in the schools of South Africa. They give away 50% of the money they make to end hunger in the lives of young children. And their coffee is just first class, organically grown, fair trade, premium grade coffee beans. So you're guaranteed deliciousness with every sip. Really, it's an amazing, amazing brand and you should get behind them just as I have. And it's super easy. You just go online. And if you don't like it, which I don't see why you wouldn't, but if you don't for some reason, 100% money back guaranteed within 30 days. So it's a win-win-win. It's a win for everyone. So just go to the website, punch in genuinely, and you will get a 10% discount at freelunchcoffee.com. Again, freelunchcoffee.com. Guys, it is a season of giving. So like I said, win-win. You get coffee, children in need, get food, and the company can continue to do this and help people around the world. So freelunchcoffee.com, back to the show. So uh, transitioning from the uh, brick-and-mortar yeah. college to uh, online. Uh, yeah, I think you know, brick-and-mortar will never totally go away. Um, but I think there was a, even until a year ago, people were saying that stuff that is now online would never work online. Um, so the question now is how much of it shifts back? Um, I think there will probably still be a college system of four-year degrees where you go physically in person, um, but it will be a fraction of the people who are going now will take that path because there's so many other paths available. Um, I think the, the four-year degree kind of traditional academia does make sense for you know, maybe a fourth of the people that are currently going to college, but it's certainly not everybody. Um, so that will shift, I think. And, you know, there's, um, I, I, I personally don't have kids, but pretty much all my friends have kids and where I live, all the neighbors do as well. And, um, I hear that kids with learning difficulties are having a really difficult time this year specifically. I believe uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I was just, you know, I started to think because I, when I was growing up, I had, I definitely had uh, learning difficulties like ADD, couldn't, you know, stay focused. And I was, and I was thinking like, if I had to be in this situation day when I'm a 13 or 14 year old and I had to be on Zoom with the phones and all the distractions, like, forget about it, impossible, right? And I was thinking, is, is, you know, is the one-on-one uh, tutor irreplaceable or could there be maybe a new platform that would specifically focus on kids with, with learning disabilities that are maybe suffering a little bit extra this year? Yeah, so it's interesting because we have, like, this is one of those times where I think you have the, there's so much history of, you know, when, when my wife was an elementary school teacher, it was, you know, she was a teacher and there were, I mean, we're in Utah, so there were 30 kids and, you know, everybody's trying to figure it out together. Um, and there are new models that are different ratios or different groups of kids and all, all sorts of new stuff. Um, and, you know, some people look at that and say, oh, the special needs kids might be disadvantaged in this new world. Um and that may be true, right? I don't fully know. I'd imagine that if you're a special needs kid, it's way more difficult to learn online. Yeah. Um, and it may be that if you're a kid who, you know, there there might be some people who thrive and excel in that environment. And so what I hope we get to is that kind of just better matching for which style is best for which individual. I mean, like in my high school, there are you know, kids who had Down syndrome and Zoom does not work for that, right? Yeah. Like it just it just doesn't. Yeah. Um, but there are also people who sat in classes and slept through the day because it wasn't engaging and it wasn't what they wanted, and what they wanted wasn't at our school. Yeah. Um, so I, I hope that over time, you know, we can find the right fit for all of the types. Um, right now, what we have is one size fits all. And it, I don't even know if it's one size fits most. I got to think back to my high school class of like how many of the students were engaged and learning. Like I think half would be generous in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're also kind of figuring shit out this year, right? Like this has been a very experimental year for everyone, very difficult year for everyone. And everyone's just trying to figure out, you know, uh, Parents are working from home. They're trying to figure out how to manage the kids. The kids are studying from home. They're trying to figure out the teachers are teaching from their house. They're trying to like, everyone's just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the good news is there's a lot of experimentation. Um, The, yeah, the bad, I mean, I think that will net net be good in the long run. Um, But it means there's a lot to figure out in the meantime. Yeah. Are you guys working remote, all, all the team? Yeah. So we've, we've always had about half of the team be remote. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the students have always been remote. Um, so, so it was a, a really easy transition for us. Um, I'm sure we'll have places for people to work out of when that's an option again. Because uh, we, you know, we've got people in San Francisco that have you know, two kids and two adults in a 700-square-foot studio and it didn't matter before because everybody went to school and work and you just kind of came home to eat and sleep. And now, you know, two kids trying to go to school and both kids trying to work. And it's just, it's tough. It's tough. Um, and I don't know what the answer is right now. Like, you know, I talk with some folks like, yeah, I'm in a difficult position because of X, Y, Z. And it's like, 
I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. it just sucks. Yeah. I, th- I think at the beginning of the year, everyone was like, fuck yeah, like working from home, this is great. Like, I don't have to commute and I'm just sitting with my coffee in the backyard. But I think now, if you were to poll people, I don't know if they would have, you know, probably some people would still love to keep doing the remote work. But I, I think the, 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 I think the poll would show that a lot of people are kind of missing, not necessarily the office, but just socializing with, with their fellow coworkers, going somewhere, leaving the house. I think people, I think people kind of miss it. No. And I think they're, so we had a hybrid culture before where we had people who, who were in the office and people who were remote. And if you are intentionally being remote, you structure your life very differently, right? You, you have social groups outside of work. You have, you know, like, you don't rely on that same kind of work infrastructure. Um, whereas, you know, the people who are not like being forced to be remote sucks in most instances, right? It's not fun. Mm-hmm. Choosing to be remote, you can build your life a different way yeah. and you have to be very intentional about it. Um, yeah. I don't think, I guess it's, 50-50 of who would prefer to go back and who wouldn't of the people who can now take their pick and get at some magical point in the future in which there's a vaccine or whatever, but we're, we're not even in that world yet. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think remote work is panacea if you haven't built your life around it that way. Do you uh, think- I miss the office for sure. I miss my routine of going to the gym and going to the office and um, I don't miss the commute. I spend way more time with my family now. So they're, they're trade-offs. Um, and, you know, we're building our life a little bit differently now that we're remote than when we were in downtown San Francisco. Yeah. Do you think we're, I mean, is a status quo moving forward going to be this? Is it going to be once we have a vaccine, boom, everyone's back to the office and then brick and mortar? Or is it going to, like you said, going to be a hybrid, a little bit of this, a little bit of that? I think it'll be more of a hybrid. I don't think, I don't, I mean, definitely not everybody will shift back. Um, and there are some companies that have, you know, for the first couple of months, everybody was like, Hey, what's, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So maybe this will be a couple months and we'll wait it out and then we'll be back in the office. And then everyone was kind of looking for certainty. Like we had a bunch of staff be like, Hey, so I moved to San Francisco and I'm paying 4,000 a month in rent for this job. If I don't need to be in San Francisco, like I'm still happy to work here, but I'm not going to be in San Francisco. <laughs> um, and we were certainly not the only company that saw that. Um, so I don't think everybody will shift back to in person. I don't think you know there will never be companies that go to the office again. I think it'll be somewhere in between. I think the scale tips toward remote um, for a couple of reasons. The first is just that you can recruit a wider variety of people and that I think the pros of that may start to outweigh the cons. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly people who like, I mean, there are people on Lambda staff that are super extroverted and love working out of the office and this kind of sucks for them. And I, mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah. I mean, it's also economics, right? If you don't have to rent an office space uh, with all the amenities that come with that, with the catering, with, I don't know, everything on top, that's a huge uh, expense off your back. Totally. Not to mention, like, if you're a Bay Area startup, like, 
people will work for way less outside of San Francisco than they will work inside of San Francisco. So you can you can have your viewpoint on whether everybody should be paid San Francisco salaries, but I think the San Francisco market is very different than the US market, which is very different than the global market. And you'll find different efficiencies in all those places. Was there something that surprised you this year? And and <laughs> I know everything surprised you, but like on the flip side, was there something, you know, once COVID hit, everyone had their, their expectations and projections and predictions, what's going to happen this year. And I'm just wondering if there's something that you kind of, when, when COVID hit, you're like, you know, I think this is what's going to happen. And actually maybe the opposite of that happened or just, you were just, I don't know, you, that wasn't what you expected to happen. Yeah. Uh, this will probably not be a popular answer, but it's not as bad as I had anticipated actually. Hmm. Um, yeah, not popular. (laughs) Yeah. that's That's not a very cool thing to say, but I was expecting something way worse for a while. And like, the case count basically followed. I mean, it, I was just doing math on it, right? Like, hey, the growth rate looks like this. You, you know, who knows how much testing is or is not being done? That's you know really difficult to measure. But like, based on the virality that we are seeing and the death rate, I was I would have guessed there was you know ten times as much death. And I'm really glad that I was wrong. To be clear, yeah. I'll happily be, I'll be wrong all day, and it's still really nasty um but it's not as bad as i thought it was going to be that makes that makes it sound like i'm hand waving about it like it's still awful it's just i was anticipating something even worse yeah for me the part that that annoys me is how um hypocritical everyone is and how political this thing has become i can't stand that that drives me insane how masks became a political issue is like we should figure out what causes that and undo whatever that is, because that's the stupidest thing ever. And how like whether, and like for a while there, you couldn't suggest that anything should be like, it was, if you want to suggest that maybe schools should be open, you were like an evil person. And I don't even know what the right answer is there, but like, this is a complex, complicated situation. And I still don't know what the right answer is. Um, because there, there's just so many trade-offs and where you lie on what the right trade-off is, is pretty individual and it's tricky. Um, there's way too much extremism, I think on, on all sides. Yeah. What, what, what bothers me is that depending on what, uh, side of, of the political aisle you stand, it's okay to go on a parade or on some sort of, um, you know, gatherings in the streets and the tens of thousands, if you're on the left or the right, right? If it's a rally on the right, if it's some sort of a gathering on the left, then it's fine. And then the news media is okay. But then once the other side does it, oh my God, it's horrific. What are they doing? This is a super spreader. And there's just so much hypocrisy. And then, but then if there's a restaurant with five people inside, they shut it down and they find them. Meanwhile, these poor people, they're just trying to make a living. They're trying to, you know, keep their family with food on the table. So that whole part just really rubs me the wrong way. Like, I don't understand why you're shutting down these small businesses that are just trying to make a living. Really, they're not super spreaders. They're not doing anything. And honestly, like I'm seeing here, like specifically in Connecticut, I don't know how it is in other states, but, you know, everyone has masks on. 
They're they're sitting. They just space the tables apart, and it's fine. It's it's really fine. Like you don't have to shut down these businesses. Like it's it's like shutting down these businesses is worse than getting COVID. Like I don't I don't know if that's controversial or not, but like if you have to shut down your business, something you invested your money in, something that brings money to feed your family, versus you know getting and I had I had COVID. I was one of the first. I don't know one of the first, but I got it early on in March in in New York, and it was a really shitty week. And uh, and then it was done. You know, so yeah, yeah I'm, know. I'm definitely going to sidestep which is better or worse, um, <laughs> but. But yeah, I think it's, I mean, the reality is there are trade-offs that are difficult to legislate and different for each person. And I mean, of which you would prefer, right? Um, And like, the reality is that there's not a winning answer where it's like, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Everybody's happy. Everything goes away. Like shutting down businesses is awful and people getting sick is awful. And like, there's no clear win. <laughs> like, yeah. so, so just trying to trying to limit the amount of damage. And look, I think you know the data seems to point to the fact that in the United States, like we're not going to kill the virus by. I mean, it's it's just going to rip through everything. I think at this point, I don't. You know, it's vaccine or uh, herd immunity. There, there's not like a you know we like has happened in a few countries where like, ah, it's just, you know, we suppressed it enough that there's very few cases. Like, I think we're past that point now. No, uh, just, like wildfire. Yeah. Just the math of it. I don't know how, how you'd come back from it. Um, so I'm, you know, it looks like we figured out how to limit the deaths a lot more, um, which is a good thing. And outside of that, I think it's just ripping through and I don't, I don't know what we can do about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. It's uh like I like I said earlier, it's a it's a rough year for everyone. Um, you know, everyone has their opinions. I don't think anyone's has solutions. Although there are a few countries that have done extremely well, uh, with with very low um amount of infections, very low death rates. Um, I don't know if it's impossible to to copy what they've done, maybe because they're smaller countries. Um, and yeah, we certainly. We, we acted too slowly. And I mean, the tricky thing about Americans is you can tell them to do whatever you want to tell them. <laughs> They're not necessarily going to do it. Freedom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are pluses and I mean, there are a lot of pluses to freedom. There are some minuses. Yeah. And that's yeah. one of the minuses is like, you know, we, I'm glad that we don't have a totalitarian regime that can tell us exactly what we do and we have to follow it to the letter of the law. The minus is that if you tell people to wear masks and social distance, some of them are just not gonna. Um, so, yeah. Well, there's just such a distrust in government that it's just, it goes into conspiracy theories so quickly here. And with, uh, with again, social media, QAnon, I don't know, Reddit, they just, it, it spreads like wildfire as well. And then people just don't want to listen to reason. They'll try to find some conspiracy that lizard people are, I don't know. It's, it's all very ridiculous at times. Even if yeah, I mean, they- the fact that like the marching orders from the world health organization in the beginning were don't wear a mask. Yeah. It doesn't help you, which is like, 
I mean, we, we, we almost forgot about that, but I remember, you know, checking Twitter when everybody was saying, don't buy a mask. Nobody needs masks. They don't do anything. We should pretend like that never happened now, I guess, which is another interesting phenomenon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's complex and nuanced and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Same here, man. Um, so I like, I like to close out hopefully with some sort of, a you know, positive message. So I know that you, you had a business prior to Lambda and you guys were very close to closing a a series round and Mm -hmm. last, last minute, something didn't work out. You got a phone call saying, Hey, like we're actually not going to fund you guys, which that that's not the positive that sucks. But was there something positive that came out of that? Some sort of a lesson that, that you learned? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of lessons. One was, you know, it's never done until money is in the bank. Um, so all of my subsequent fundraising rounds, um, I've, yeah, I've, I've acted very differently than I did during that one, <laughs> um, to, to put it mildly. Um, and then I think like, you know, I remember after that business failed, you know, driving around, like you see the guy, at the golf course, picking up golf balls and being like, ah, am I, am I capable of doing that? like the level of self-doubt was pretty extreme. Um, but I, like, I think my net takeaway is like, nothing is ever as bad as it seems in the moment and stuff can really suck, but you'll figure out a way to, to work through it and it, it'll all work out. Um, I get in trouble for saying stuff like it'll all work out as well. Cause you know, what if you have cancer and you die? But like, um, <laughs> I actually, you know, yeah. I'm an optimistic enough that I believe, um, you know, things are not as bad as they seem. Um, and the, the more we learn to reckon with those things, the better off we are. So, yeah. Mindset is everything. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Austin, you're awesome, man. I really appreciate, uh, this was great. And I think people are really attracted to you because of your sincerity. So that's one thing that, you know, keep that, just always keep that. That's awesome. Thanks man. That's good. Yeah, man. All right. We'll be in touch, man. Thanks again.